0: Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter six, verses 61 to 71. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. One of my favorite theologians to read is John Owen. Some of you may be familiar with him. He's a 17th century English pastor theologian. And very prolific, so there's so many things you could reference, but one particular thing that I've latched on to, and it's been helpful, is his description of the church's responsibility. And John Owen says that the church really has basically two jobs. One, to let those who don't know Jesus know that Jesus saves sinners from death and condemnation. The second is to let those who believe in Jesus and are saved by the truth of the gospel, remind them and tell them again and again that they are saved. Because you and I, in John Owen's belief, are prone to wander. We forget. And for me as a pastor, the job is really simple. I only have one message to tell you. We offer more than just coffee and a building. Uh, I think it's more than hope that we present the gospel. But the job is really simple to present the truth of Jesus. The difficult thing is even for, and I can't speak for Fuji or Sam, is that for me, I'm tempted to give you something else, but that's really it. I have nothing else more to offer you than Christ. And I wish it was easier for me because I can only imagine some of the challenges that many of you are going through, have gone through, maybe lingering pain and and stress. I wish I could offer you a magic pill, but Christ is all that we can give. But it's not a mediocre option. It's not a secondary, substandard option, but it's the only option. As we as we just heard from the scripture reading, there is nowhere else, no one else to turn to. We've been looking at John 6 for quite a while, and maybe you're grown tired of it. Uh, it's been quite a challenge to preach three times from the same passage. Uh, but again, I have nothing else really new to tell you. The first point I'd like to remind us of, I guess, is that Jesus tells us in this chapter that he is the bread of life. And that may not mean like much to you, but again, he quickly compares himself to earthly bread, which you eat, you need it. Um, Maybe different from us. It's not that we crave. They needed to eat. They didn't have food stored away. And so they ate this, ate earthly bread and they were strengthened and nourished and they were able to live. For them, it often was, if not all the time, a matter of life and death. So he ate the earthly bread, and he says, I'm better than that. I'm the bread of life that gives eternal life. Not just what I can offer you, I am eternal life. And some of his sayings were really harsh and offensive. Uh, three weeks ago, before Sam Assoa went away, Sam uh, preached a about how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God alone, draws sinners to Christ. I can't do that. And I wish, for some of you parents who struggle with your children, I wish there was something I could give you that would guarantee that they would know Christ. I'm glad my mom did not, when I was a teenager, turn to anything else but the sovereign God. Only God can draw sinners to his son. We can't do that, no matter how eloquent, no matter how clear You may think it's the world's best sermon, the best sermon in history, best gospel presentation you'd ever heard, and you don't need to listen to any more because that was it. And you want your child, you want your husband, your wife, your neighbor, your friend, your father, your mother, whoever it is that's an unbeliever, to listen to this one message. And isn't it interesting that maybe more often than not, it's not the result you were hoping for. So there's nothing else we can really do. And that's offensive, isn't it? Because I see successful people. I see people one day who will be very successful. I've no doubt, I've been told numerous t- on numerous occasions how this place is saturated with academic excellence. And it's offensive to say that all those gifts and talents and accomplishments and success cannot earn you even a fraction of a second in eternal life in heaven with the Lord. All of that. You could amass all of it collectively. It still can't get you in. It's offensive, isn't it? You're saying, I can't do it. I'm at the mercy of God. And so because of this, there were a lot of disciples. And the term is used rather broadly. We talked about this last week. You could even look a little earlier in John chapter 6 where the disciples might have been referred to as the 5,000 people who were fed. They were following Jesus for various reasons. And all of a sudden, after hearing what Jesus had to teach them, they decided this is too hard to understand, not the level of difficulty, but I just can't accept it. It's ridiculous. It's offensive. And they left him and suddenly that 5,000, we're left with this impression, we're left with the impression that this 5,000 has suddenly dwindled to 12. 12 disciples remain, and Jesus turns to them, and he asks them a question, why or are you two going to leave me? So we'll look at that in a bit. Now John Owen basically nice and easily characterized people in two categories, you're either a believer or you're not a believer. And, and it's not always that easy. I don't know where you stand. And honestly, I could just be a half-decent speaker, someone who's been hired to be a pastor, but you don't really know whether I'm a Christian, ultimately. Sure, you may be able to look at the things I say, the way I live, ask my wife, does does this guy really act like a believer at home? Um, I'd like to think at least seven out of ten times she'll say yes. Uh, But ultimately, you don't know, and I don't know. That doesn't mean we're not held with the responsibility of affirming people's faith. And we look at their confession, and we look at their lifestyle, are there fruits of repentance, things like that. But ultimately, I don't know. And it doesn't really matter whether I decide whether you're a Christian or not. What ultimately matters is the one that Scripture says searches the hearts and minds of men. And that's God. God will look into your heart, and he will decide. He will know. He won't, like, lay out the facts. He can just look right in, and he can tell whether that heart is new in Christ or not. So it doesn't matter what we do. But these people who were disciples and had left... The way I read into that is I don't believe that all 5,000 were simply unbelievers. Because I, when I read other parts of scripture, it suggests that in the general pool of people who may not seem so faithful, it is very possible that they are actually genuine believers. I'd love to tell you that everything just progressively gets better as a believer, that your knowledge of the gospel will increase and you'll just become more and more obedient as you live. That's not always the case. I'm sure you could probably think of some people in your own experiences that fit that bill. So what I'd like for us to do is kind of go through um, three passages that speak to what I'm talking about. And the first is in Matthew 13, where Jesus is presenting the parable of the sower. And he speaks of four different kinds of people. And maybe you fall into one of these categories. Um, Verses 18 to 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, He has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another Thirty. Now, the way I approach this passage, and maybe you're different, is that the first three categories of people are not believers, but the last is. And again, I know that it says there's 30, 60, 100-fold regarding the fruit of their repentance and their lifestyle, demonstrating that they are genuine believers. Now, although Jesus, I believe, speaks in these terms, if you look at the highlights of this passage, they can refer to anybody. They're applicable to any of us. So one the first essential thing is that if you want to be a genuine believer, what's fundamental and foundational for every genuine believer is that they hear the word of God. You cannot come to Christ without the gospel. I cannot think of someone who I love dearly. won't mention this person's name in case they're watching, but love this person dearly and is not a believer, I cannot just sit back and say, I hope they come to the Lord, and yet hope that that would happen without anybody ever presenting the gospel to that person. It has to be communicated. Now it may be that God, in the wonderful ways that he works, that that presentation has happened, has been received, and God in his own timing and wisdom may allow faith to come a little later than you would like or expect but the gospel presentation has to be there there has to be a hearing of the word in fact paul picks up on this later in romans 10 he says hearing comes from or faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of christ it has to be there however it can't stop there verse 19 it says there needs to be understanding because these in the first group of unbelievers, they didn't understand. And so for you who may think or believe and profess that you're not a believer today, my encouragement to you is listen to the word. But if you don't understand it, don't just walk away. As Fuji will say later in the service, and he always does, I think it's a wonderful reminder Seek out the answers. If it if it doesn't sit well, I'd be more than glad to talk it out with you. Try to bring you to a place of understanding. But ultimately, I will say this, and this is again where it can be frustrating and offensive, is that you ultimately don't hold the ability to understand. It's not how smart or less intelligent you are. It's whether the Spirit grants you understanding. And that A humble heart. Now, when Pastor Sam was talking about the drawing of sinners to Jesus, that's sort of what I would call the -the behind-the-scenes look at what actually happens. Now, God wonderfully shows us what really happens because he's the one that says, well, I'm going to bring that person to my son. But if we kind of step in front of the curtain, you need to understand what the gospel is telling you. That this sovereign God shows compassion and mercy to helpless sinners, sure, that can be offensive in one sense because you're telling me I can't on my own. And our sin is constantly bombarding our hearts and minds, whether we are believers or not, saying you can, you can. Not God. You can, you don't need God. Because if anything, as we talked about last week, in Genesis 3, you can be like God. You are like God. You're on par, same league as God. So we're constantly wrestling with that. So that is offensive even for some of us who are believers even. But on the flip side of that coin is this great mercy and compassion that is shown saying, I cannot just leave you. I won't just leave you in your helplessness to think and be deceived that you can. I'm going to tell you that you can't. That is a hard message. You cannot. God can. And he's willing. He's willing. That's a hard message. But God is just going to tell us the truth. So don't just sit there and do not be satisfied in a lack of understanding. The third thing we see is in verse 21, there's tribulation and persecution, and that's understandable to a certain degree. You know, if you're faced with a lot of challenges and obstacles in life where times are just really difficult, if you're familiar with the book of Job, then you see all that someone can be bombarded with in this world. And they're just not exclusive to a certain group of people. Eventually, all of us meet us at least a good amount of that. The natural expect, negative expectations of life. Sickness, illness, separation, brokenness, all these things. Hatred. You name it. So these tribulations and persecutions can come. So you can understand, but if you don't, if you don't see this God who is great and loving, and you don't place your trust in his wisdom, and that he is sovereign in this situation, why would you place your trust in him? You're going to basically allow your thoughts and emotions be determined by what you see. And what you see are these insurmountable challenges. God's not that big. Sometimes it may be good to be reminded be reminded as little kids sing often, I tried to get it right in the first service. I'm probably still gonna get it wrong. My God is so big, so great and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. But here's the other thing about that: it's not just simply trusting that God can in the midst of these tribulations and persecutions, but it's trusting that you know what is best. Otherwise, then again, it isn't faith to say, God, I know you can, but you got to do it now. And you got to do it this way. That's not trusting in God. That's just really telling him what to do. Because I know what's best. And it's like, I am... Well, let me move on. Verse 22. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. For the unbeliever again, understandable, those are tangible. They grant you access to so much pleasure and delight. They screen you, they distance you from much trouble. That even when you are faced with tragedies and tribulations and persecutions, you have tangible means to either alleviate the brunt of that or to completely eliminate it, if you want to speak in those terms. It's understandable. But even for the believer, do we not struggle with these things? That we easily slip into, God, this is what's really going to help me, and that's what I need. So as I shared before, in times of unemployment, certainly you should pray for, God, I need a job. Of course. That is biblical. But... Is the provision of money going to, and this can sound really insensitive, is that really going to solve all your problems? And if God were to give you that, does that increase your faith? Or is it that I trust in God because it gives me whatever I want? Kind of like a spoiled little child. So we who are believers can easily fall into the traps that prevent other people who are not believers from trusting in the Lord here's another passage second Peter chapter 1 verses 5 10 this is one of my favorite because it really punches you in the gut for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith and what Peter is not saying is this Peter is not saying that in any way you divvy it up faith is at best 99% and there's something else he's not saying that But for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And that's probably a great description of what um, good faith looks like, healthy faith, per se. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Think about that. Peter's writing to believers, and he's saying you could possibly be ineffective and unfruitful. That's pretty sad. Because as a, as a father, sure, I'm an empty nester, but I still keep in touch with my kids. They just don't want to keep in touch with me. But um, as a father, I want to be fruitful for their benefit as well. As a husband, I want to be fruitful for my wife. As a pastor, I want to be fruitful for the congregation to the glory of God, but it can, it's possible that I can be ineffective. The sermons will sound the same. I will act the same, but because I have been negligent in my faith, I will be ineffective and unfruitful. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse nine, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 9 should trouble you. Peter uses language that is typically employed to describe unbelief. For someone who doesn't have faith, they're the ones that are nearsighted. They're the ones that are blind. They're the ones who have forgotten But it's possible, again, Peter's writing to Christians, it's possible that you could, due to negligence and wandering from your faith, not focusing on the gospel, being reminded of what Jesus has done and who he is in your life, you can be, to the watching world, no different from an unbeliever. That's scary. And so sometimes I look at some people in my life who at one time in their lives they look so passionate, so faithful, committed. Today, I don't know if they were ever Christians. I think of myself, and Sam was talking about the sins of your youth, and Fuji knows the sins of my youth more than anyone in this room, perhaps, because we've known each other for quite a while. If you met me at 13, you would have said, Oh, he loves Jesus. From 14 to 19, this boy needs Jesus, no doubt. That would have been the first thing you would have said. So when I look back, I think there were even times where I accepted Jesus twice in one Sunday. You know, so if you, and I really wrestled this when my theology was still forming and me coming to a a more clear understanding of what, scripture was teaching, I look back and thought, oh, I didn't know Jesus at 13, what had happened then, I don't think I really knew Jesus then, but I came to the Lord at 19. But then as I learned more and increased in my knowledge and understood what, how God works and, and the manner in which he did, that during those years, that was just my negligence. I'd wandered from the Lord to the point where I'd forgotten by noon that I was loved by Jesus. I'd forgotten that I was cleansed of my sins Verse 9. Here's a third passage. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now typically this is this, well, not typically, but this is often used in support for what's called Arminianism and the belief that one can possibly lose their salvation. I do not believe that, and that's again a different conversation, maybe addressed in Gospel. Well, I'm not sure, but uh, I think this is referring to people who have benefited from the overflow, shall we say the emanating glory of the Holy Spirit. You know, you may not know someone is particularly nice. You may not know that person well. But when you are in that person's company, you benefit from the fact that they are nice. I come from Philadelphia where they say we are maybe some of the worst citizens in the United States of America. (laughs) I admit that. I I have seen it with my eyes. I've lived it with my body. But you may not know Philadelphia, but if you go in there, let's just assume that that lie is true. If you go to Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, you'll be like, man, these people just hate. But you don't know any of them. But you just, there's just so much hate. (laughs) You can't help but to escape it. So to go back to Hebrews, I think what this is speaking about are people who are in the presence of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, abounding in the fruits of the Spirit, and they benefit from that. They were benefiting from that, and in their mind, without fully understanding the gospel of who Jesus is and what he had done, they believed they were believers. And then something happened, and they walked away. Maybe very similar to the parable of the sower. They walked away. But here's the thing. It's hard to convince those people to give it a second try, isn't it? Because they've already decided it doesn't work. And so these are three passages. The reason why I've thrown them at you is to show you that even for believers, we can wander, if not deviate into, as a result of negligence in our faith, to a place where we act and even deceive ourselves to think that we're not even saved. That's the worst case scenario. So we have to be really certain. And wonderfully, we weren't even coordinating. But when we sang blessed assurance, the gospel does promise assurance. But the gospel is not going to lie to you and say, just because you're a Christian, you will always have assurance. And no matter what comes in your your life, no matter how negligent you may be, you will always know you're a Christian and you will always be right about it. Bible never says that. It's not true. Now, just because there can be opportunities and experiences where you lose confidence that you may be a believer, that doesn't undermine the value or take away from the greatness of the gospel. That's on me, not on Jesus. Now, this passage, going back to John 6, it mentions how Jesus called Judas. You ever wonder about that? Judas gets a bad rap in history. Now, Judas actually isn't a bad name. I don't think it's wise to call your next son or grandchild Judas, but it's not a bad name. It's actually just a derivative of the name Judah. It's a very godly name. But again, in case, you're con- in, cl- in case you're contemplating it or considering it, don't do it. Don't call your son Jesus. Judas, sorry. <laughs> either. It'd be a little weird either way. Um, but we tend to read into scripture and think that from the very beginning, Judas had a plot to sell Jesus and to have him crucified. Actually, Scripture tells us that the devil only entered his heart on that very first Good Friday, not before then. And Jesus did pick him among the 12. Yes, he knew, but I don't think Jesus was just really dumb and didn't know what he was doing. But I think he knew exactly what he was doing. And he would allow for someone like Judas to be in his company. Now, Judas wasn't so bad for most of the time. John Calvin says that ultimately what undid him was his greed, and we saw that greed even before the Good Friday evening. We see the greed when um, Jesus is anointed with ointment, and he says we should sell, we should have sold that and given the proceeds to the poor when he was really thinking about his own pocket. And Judas was given the responsibility of taking care of the finances. Now for the married people in the room, I'm assuming you're probably like most families, where one person takes care of the money. Not both. It's not a committee. One person keeps the books. The other probably spends it. But that person is chosen. Why? Because they're trustworthy. They're gifted, administrative. They keep numbers well. They're like, yeah, we've got money in the bank. How much? Eh, Enough. No, they'll tell you down to the penny. They'll tell you the interest. Telling you how much they have in savings, where the investments are, all that stuff. Right? Judas was probably like that. Very gifted. And he probably used it well for the most part, but he did help himself and put a little in his pocket every once in a while. Judas was somebody that traveled with Jesus for three years. Judas saw every miracle up close. Judas was there whether he was actually directly involved in those conversations or he overheard, he heard the stuff that's not even recorded in Scripture. Don't worry, your faith isn't any less a faith in the Lord because you're missing out on those private conversations. But Judas was there. And we're only left to think that Judas continued to follow him because Jesus impressed Jesus, again, like Hebrews, emanating the Holy Spirit. Judas benefited from that. But ultimately, again, what undid him was his greed. He saw Jesus as something other than what Scripture intended to promise, which was the Messiah, the Son of God, who would die on the cross for sinners. Judas was there for all of that. Now, when I say, are there any Judases among us, I don't mean you're going to sell Jesus out with some silver. But to be a little allegorical, I think it's okay. Have we not sold him? Maybe on a given Sunday? Maybe at a given moment? Maybe for a season? A couple years? Lord, let me just get past this and then my life is yours. What have we gained by selling Jesus? It seems so important then. The silver seems so important and valuable then. And now we regret it, don't we? Or it just doesn't seem as valuable. It can happen to any of us. And all the more we need to be sure, all the more we need to be rooted in the gospel. I want to close with this idea that the very gospel in John chapter 6 that offends is the very gospel that confirms. Again, the story gives us the impression that 5,000 people have suddenly decided they don't want to follow Jesus anymore, and all that's left are 12. And Jesus turns to them, and he says, well, what about you? It's kind of like, you know, you should never read emotion into text. That's when a lot of marital strife happens. Um, And you read into this, and you're thinking, wow, Jesus, you're a little rough on these guys. It almost sounds like Jesus is inviting them to leave too. But actually, what Jesus is doing there is he is giving them an opportunity to confirm their faith. And what is Simon Peter's response? Simon Peter gives us a very compact way in which you and I can continue to be confident and assured that we are his. Which is, he says, You alone have the words of life. Who else are we gonna turn to? Peter, maybe he didn't quite fully understand the extent of what he was saying, but he's basically affirming the gospel that says no other. It's gonna affirm in a foreshadowing sense of what Jesus is gonna say later, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only my words, I am eternal life, nobody else. I'm not just the words, I'm not just the messenger. I am the very message. I am it. I'm not just going to give you bread out of my pocket or my pantry. I am that bread that you must eat. And he says, Peter says in response, he says, you are the Holy One of God and we have come to believe in you. In that short little response, Peter had just summarized everything that we've been talking about in John chapter 6. Who Jesus is, the Holy One of God, eternal life, what he offers, and how he has enabled us to believe. We have come to believe in you. He's not saying we, what he means is, and I guess it can be mistranslated or misunderstood, he means that you have enabled us to believe in you, that you are these things. And these are your promises. And they are true. Only in Christ. And so my closing encouragement to you, if you're an unbeliever, it's just one simple starting point. Look to Christ. Don't look elsewhere. Look to Jesus to find out who Jesus is. Come with a humble heart. Again, yeah, I get what we just talked about behind the curtain, but in front of the curtain, Scripture's still going to tell you you got to come with a humble heart that says, Lord, help me understand. Kind of like Nicodemus. He was like, I don't get it. Help me understand. And may the Spirit show you grace and mercy. But for you who are believers here in this room today, how do you continue in your confidence and your confirmation of your faith with assurance that you are Christ and he is yours, that you are united to him inseparably, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How do you continue to know this so that the tribulations and the persecutions will not overwhelm you? That your hearts would not be lured and seduced by the needs and the riches of this world? It's going back to the one who has the very words of life. The Holy One of God. And that you would beg and you would ask and you would plead that your heart would continue to believe. That in that the fruit will come. We don't endeavor for the fruit to increase the faith. But God must work in our hearts so that what we do with our hands and what we say with our lips honor him as well. So may you stay confident in the Lord as you focus on Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus who is our only hope. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel that tells us there is no other. He is it. Sure, it's, it's frustrating, it's offensive, It's that we can't do any of this on our own strength or might or abilities. And so we look to you. And we, God, God, we ask that you would be merciful to us. God, we ask that you would show compassion to those who don't understand, to those who don't believe, that you are the way, the truth, and life. You are eternal life. You are the resurrection and the life. You are the Holy One of God. Holy Spirit, enable them to believe. Enable us, we who do believe, we are not better. But enable us to continue to believe, to walk faithfully in the truth of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen.